So my, my head is not being chopped right. I'm good. Let's go before the Lord again and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this hour that you've given us to hear the testimony of Christ, the testimony of our salvation, even as it was prophesied in the Old Testament, in types and shadows, and Christ coming in the fullness of time and fulfilling Christ being the substance of all things. We thank you for all whom you have gathered here this morning and all who are joining us online and all who shall listen later to this message. May you grant them ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you have not turned already, we are in First Samuel 1. First Samuel 1. And we're going to go through the whole chapter. <laughs> it's necessary to read the text because the details of the gospel are in the text. So if you don't read the text, you won't hear what God is saying. First Samuel 1, and I'm reading from the New King James. <laughs> Small technical glitch. That's why salvation is by grace alone. First Samuel 1 again. Now there was a certain man of Ramathane Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, 
if you indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli washed her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. So the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. It's a lot of text, wonderful text. We have three titles, two of which are almost similar. Introduction to First Samuel. And number two, Hannah, the barren one, gives birth. Hannah, the barren one, gives birth. And number three, the beloved barren one. <laughs> the beloved barren one. Good morning, one and all who are joining us. Welcome to the broadcast of God's message. God's free and sovereign grace. We go back again this morning to the Old Testament 
to glean gospel testimony as God was preparing the stage for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what all these stories were about, preparing the stage. And yes, one can earn a PhD, do a PhD study on the life of Israel under Samuel, life of Israel under Saul, even under David, and come up with all kinds of very interesting things maybe useful application things, but still miss the point. Very practical and encouraging sermons have been written and preached on the life of these characters, but many of them still missed the one thing that is needful. They missed Christ Jesus. They missed the gospel. And if you miss Christ, you have missed the whole thing because he is the subject of all of God's storytelling. Whenever God tells a story, it is not a bedtime story. It is the story of Christ. But as I've said many times before, some people may get frustrated that they can't find Christ's testimony in these stories, even some preachers who cannot preach Christ from these stories. But I say here and now, rejoice if God has revealed Christ to you. Rejoice. Because it is all about him. But to say preaching Christ from these stories is making things up is totally a different story. It becomes a denial of the Holy Spirit or Christ's own testimony of what he said the Old Testament testified of. Christ made statements to the effect that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets were witnesses of him. And while there are practical things that we can glean from the stories, as I said, our goal here is to preach Christ. Oprah has a lot of practical things, and Deepak Chopra and all these other guys, they have a lot of practical things that they can give you. But we are here to preach Christ because as Apostle Paul said, I must preach the gospel. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel, for necessity has been laid on me. I have to preach Christ. And it is going to take us a very long time to get through the understanding that God will give us along the way as we unpack the chapter and unpack the whole book of First Samuel that has 31 chapters, so we're looking at a minimum of 31 messages if we are greedy. <laughs> I do not know all the details, but God will open the understanding to the level that he wants us to see Christ for that moment. 
and some things he purposefully hides or withdraws from us only to be revealed later in another message so that we do not get overwhelmed by the amount of revelation. And I know this from first hand. But I believe we are here because God has something to teach us about Christ. And with that, my prayer is, help me, Lord, help me, Jesus, to see what was hidden from the wise and the prudent, but it has been revealed to the babes and the suckling. Authorship of the book, since we are at the beginning. Authorship of the book of First Samuel and Second Samuel. We do not know exactly who put together both books of First and Second Samuel. But there's no doubt that Samuel himself did contribute some material towards the writing of it. So much of the reading about the authorship would be conjecture as far as I'm concerned if you go and read all these wonderful and intelligent people. No one is in agreement <laughs> as to who actually wrote the book. But we know that this is what God has said about the scriptures. And for that we go to Second Peter 1, 19 to 21. Second Peter 1, 19 to 21. This is what God has said to the matter of the scriptures. Apostle Peter says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So all this was prophetic writing to the matter of the Lord Jesus and was of Holy Spirit inspiration. So to say the Bible has one ultimate author, God the Holy Spirit, is the one who inspired the writing of the whole book. God is the one who wrote the book. That is why everything makes sense. When you use Christ as your hermeneutic for reading the Bible. The events of 1st Samuel and 2nd Samuel revolve around three important characters. Samuel, Saul, and David. And with each character, elements of the gospel are introduced. Matters of law and gospel, distinctions are rehearsed. The priesthood of the law and that of Christ is given in types and shadows. The work of Christ 
in redeeming his people is pictured and anticipated. His union with his people and his anticipated future glory is also introduced to us in the person of David, of Solomon, the glory of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, the riches of Solomon, the beautiful temple that Solomon built. Those are all anticipating the glory of Christ. And thus Christ is said to be called the son of David and to sit on the throne of his father David. So that's the connection. The introduction of Samuel to us comes after Israel has been under the rulership of the judges for about 300 years. And there's been chaos politically, spiritually, morally, even a famine. As we heard from the book of Ruth in Ruth 1 verse 1, the book of Ruth was written in the context of the time of the judges. And this is what was recorded for us in Ruth 1 verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So famine would have happened most likely because of the sins of the people and God's judgment of them. But this is what I want you to see as we develop our understanding background. God is saying this is what happens in the days of the judges. There was a famine a spiritual famine, a worship of Baal. During the period or the reign of the judges, worship of the Canaanite gods, worship of Baal, was very common among the Israelites. Even Baal's female counterpart, Ashtoreth. Okay? So, Israel is caught up in the worship of false gods. And Israel had been drawn by what the other surrounding nations had been doing, and yet God had taught them not to do what these nations were doing. Everybody in Canaan, in Canaan was, 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 sorry, was worshiping the false gods. And Israel thought to themselves, we can't be the only ones who are worshipping God. We have to join the bigger company, the bigger church. <laughs> we have to join the mega church of the Canaanites. How could they be lost when we have hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people, worshipping the same gods? And that is still with us this day that people do not judge the truth by the truth, but by the numbers. They say 
There's safety in numbers. No, no, not when it comes to the truth. There's no safety in numbers. The truth is the truth. But what do the judges do? They deal with law. And this is what the law does to sinners. It brings a famine, spiritual famine and idolatry to those who do not understand the proper function of the law, thinking that they are made righteous by their own obedience to the law, hence their self-worship and self-righteousness that was caught in the testimony of the Pharisee who came and was praying to himself in the temple. The Pharisee was praying to himself. Jesus said it. And he was thanking God that he was not like other men. He was not like the other sinners, extortioners, the adulterers. Yeah. He was paying all his tithes and all those wonderful things. So he had been overtaken by idolatry, which is self-worship. The law does not bring righteousness to a sinner as many people have been made to believe. It actually causes problems for them. And so Samuel was raised as the last judge. That's where we are going. He was raised as the last judge of Israel to help bring some sanity from this famine spiritually, politically, morally. Thus we see Samuel being not just a judge, but occupying three offices of judge, prophet, and priest. But he was not the king. And we're going to see David occupying the office of king, prophet, and priest to some level. But there was never anybody who occupied all the three offices, all the four offices of judge, king, priest, and prophet. Both Christ alone is the final and ultimate prophet, king, judge, and all that. So there will be much reformation under Samuel, and Israel is constituted better as a nation. They become more disciplined, and God grants them temporary victories over their enemies. Also, the monarchy will be introduced through Saul at the end of the ministry of Samuel. But in the days of Samuel, Israel, the nation, becomes a serious force to reckon with a better nation to many intents and purposes. But sooner rather than later, the cycle of sin decay and being handed over to their enemies repeats itself. The people prove again and again that they are sinners and God continues to reiterate again and again 
that the hope of sinners shall be only in his appointed king. And so, God wants us to know in the opening verses of the book of 1 Samuel that the spiritual condition of Israel was captured clearly in the behavior of the two sons of Eli, who was the high priest at this time. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were also priests of the Lord. And their shenanigans <laughs> were God's commentary on the matter of Israel's spiritual condition and what the law is able to do or cannot do for a sinner. We have a very wonderful message when we get to that point of the chapter. I think it's chapter 2 going into fall. That's what actually prompted me to go to this book again because there were just some wonderful things that the Lord showed me. I was like, okay, there's no way. I'm going to have to go here. Okay. So the sons of Eli were corrupted priests. And if the priesthood is corrupted, then the whole nation is doomed. And with that brief introduction, we'll go to our text and we'll work it verse by verse. And you know we are done when we get to the last verse. Verse 1 of Psalm 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathem Zothim of the mountain of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So we are introduced to a man by the name of Elkanah. In the Old Testament, you find about eight people who go by Elkanah. I believe the first one was mentioned in Exodus 6.24, the son of Kohath. And we also have this Elkanah, the father of Samson, and others who are dotted around the Old Testament scriptures. And Kohath was the second son of Levi, to which Moses, Aaron, and their sister, Miriam, belonged. The first of the sons of Levi was Geshem, Geshon, and the last, Merari. And all these and their families and their clans had different assignments given them to do in the ministry of the tabernacle. The ministry of the tabernacle was assigned to the tribe of Levi. But as Israel entered into Canaan, coming out of the captivity in Egypt under the leadership of Joshua, Joshua is he who took them into the promised land. This is what we were told in Joshua 21.20. Be patient. We have a very wonderful message. We need all these details. Okay? They will help you to understand the book. Joshua 21.20. Joshua says, And the families of the children of Kohath, the Levites, 
the rest of the children of Koath, even they had the cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim. So there was an allocation of real estate, of land, as the children of Israel were going into the promised land. And the tribe of Levi did not have much of a land allocation because they were dedicated to the ministry of the tabernacle. And so they were assigned to the tribe of Ephraim. That's where they got their real estate. So Elkanah, the father of Samuel, was a Levite who was a Koathite who had land possession or residency in Ephraim. Because Ephraim was another of the tribes coming from Joseph, the two sons of Joseph that he had in Egypt. And if you're reading the New King James, I think the KJV translators got this part wrong, who said he was an Ephrathite. Because that would be in the territory of Judah. The text says this was in Ephraim. Koathites were given cities in Ephraim. So the description of Elkanah as an Ephraimite may seem confused. But it was not. He was a Levite by lineage, who had residence in Ephraim because God had allocated land for them there. And as a Levite, he would qualify Samuel the son to be born to be a priest, which thing no non-Levite was permitted to do. You could not be a priest. You could not enter into the temple business if you were not a descendant of Levi. This is what we are doing with this. It will help us understand a whole lot more about Samuel. Verse 2. And he, that is Elkanah, had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and sister Penina. <laughs> Hannah was the first wife and Penina the second. And Penina probably came on the scene because Hannah had not been able to conceive and such was the accepted practice of the day. But it was all of God's doing and there's no need to try and clean it up as many preachers and people want to do because they find it offensive to their sensibilities and try to be more righteous than God who inspired it. Elkanah did not devise this by his own free will, so-called, for to say that is to attribute it human will and decision-making and scheming as causal or determining 
of eternal matters, which thing these things were given, as we know, to preach, which thing we will not accept because all things are of God. The good, the bad, the ugly, the offensive is all of God's doing. So Penina came in and had children, but the Lord had prevented Hannah from having children of her own, and that for a gospel testimony. And Hannah means favor or grace, and Penina means quarrel, like the rock, a rock like deposit coral reefs, rough looking structures. You can see them on National Geographic, how they look and the fish that just be weaving in and out. Or pearl, P-E-A-R-L, and that to say choice or precious, something resembling a pearl intrinsically or Physically, that is the definition given by William Miriam Webster Dictionary. So both Hannah and Penny Penny were beautiful in their own way. Okay? And I'm going to be calling her Penny Penny all the way. But it seems Penny Penny is being beautiful she also had a mean character to her. She was a mean girl. As a character will soon be developed for us, again, for a gospel witness. Verse 3. So this man, Elkanah, went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So Elkanah was a devout man of God and he went yearly to Shiloh to offer yearly sacrifices as was commanded by God in the teachings of the feast in the appointed times. Feast in the Hebrew just means the appointed times and you can have, if you want to know where they are, they are in Leviticus 23. It has a summary of all the feasts that Israel was to observe. So Elkanah was probably some well-to-do man, a wealthy man, because he did not bring any doves for offerings. Doves would have been brought in by someone who was poor, and the Lord has spoken to that effect, that if a man was coming and they were poor, as happened with Joseph and Mary, they could make an offering of doves. But we are here immediately and briefly introduced to some two characters in the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests of the Lord, but their testimony will be developed for us later. Verse 4, and we are introduced to Hannah's problem. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So this apparent favoritism antagonized Penina. 
She wanted the same amount of portions, the same amount of credit card usage to go shopping and get her nails done. But Hannah had a problem, a much bigger problem, a God-imposed problem, a problem that came not by reason of sin, but by reason of God's purpose, the God who meddles in everyone's business without invitation. It's not always that we have problems because of our sin. We have problems and difficulties in life because God has a purpose with that. So the Lord had closed her womb so that she could not bear. And that to say, God is still actively involved in the matter of children. He meddles in the how many and the when and what you will have. So trust him. He knows what he is doing in everything. It was every Hebrews man or even wife's expectation that they would have a son in their family to carry or perpetuate the family name. You remember the story of Judah and Tamar. They had the same problem, but it was for the gospel testimony. And in the context of Israel, a failure to have a son especially was understood to be a curse. And this is what God has said about this matter of blessing to Israel as they were preparing to go into the promised land. Let's go to Deuteronomy 7, verse 12 to 14. Deuteronomy 7, 12 to 14. God said, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you, will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all the peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. All of Israel knows this. And yet Hannah, as Rachel before her, found herself barren. And this drama was also played out in the life of Jacob and his two wives, the sisters, Leah and Rachel. And we are told that Jacob loved Rachel, and yet the one whom he loved 
had her womb constrained by God from having children. At least in the time that they thought and expected to be having children. But the issue here is timing. You have your own timing. God has his own timing. And for a purpose. And that caused a lot of drama between the rival sisters. And here the seriousness of this matter from the mouth of Rachel. Genesis 30, 1 to 3. Genesis 30. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. (laughs) Give me children. Go to the mall, get me some children. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So Jacob ascribed the problem to God's doing, to God's sovereignty. Because only in God's sovereignty do we find answers to all things, especially the difficult ones. the things that show our lack of power because he is involved in all things and he alone is able to do and to give what we desire and more. So she said, this is Rachel, here is my maid, Bilhah, go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. So that is the seriousness of the matter. Let's go back to First Samuel 1 and beginning at verse 6. And her rival, Penina, also provoked her, that is Hannah, severely, to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So Penny Penny took opportunity to provoke Hannah heavily, scorn her to shame and make her miserable, make her hate her life because she did not have any children. And how often did she do it? Verse 7. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Hannah wept and did not eat. Year by year, and you could say day by day, and that means incessantly as and when Penina had opportunity, she would belittle Hannah. So what happened to Hannah under such constant Taunting, she wept and did not eat. She was in sorrow. Sorrow and tears became her bread. She was in distress. And that is the life of bigamy. 
I grew up under it from my grandfather who had two wives. And I've preached about it before in the matter of Sarah and, and Judah. No, in the matter of Sarah and Hagar. The message that I titled, it matters who your grandmother is. <laughs> it does matter who your grandmother is. But it may go with another name if you're looking for it. It is a message. If you can message Sean, he will tell you what the message is. But this is what we are developing here. A polygamous marriage is generally a war zone. It is from growing up under such a war situation of words <laughs> that I grew up to not liking contentious people. They remind me of the days that I want to forget. But again, this was all gospel teaching. I don't think I would have had such clarity on the matter of the distinction between law and gospel if God had not raised me the way that he did with a grandfather who had two wives. God was giving me gospel commentary material for the future. That's God's sovereignty. But let us briefly revisit Sarah and Hagar again for a template of this drama. Genesis 16, verse 1 to 5. Genesis 16, 1 to 5. Moses says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. See, they always ascribe these problems to God. God is the one who's done it. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, to be his wife. After Abraham had God ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So what do we see? We see the same drama. We see the same issues. No child. Abraham is in trouble. And he has a proposed solution which brings him even more issues to go into the tent with Hagar the maidservant of Sarah. And that is the picture of works righteousness. 
that is the picture of the work of the flesh to try and bring God's promise or God's promises by your own works of the flesh. And we see that Elkanah also has trouble because of Penny Penny. And in both cases, we see that some other woman comes into play to try and plug things. And when that happens, drama erupts. There are verbal fights. There's scorning, a despising of each other, and someone is going to be kicked out. So what is happening? God is preaching the relationship between the old covenant of the law and the new covenant. That is why in Genesis that we just read, Genesis 16, we're told that in verse 3, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, made the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, to, to be his wife, after Abraham had got 20, 10 years in the land of Canaan. He's given a nugget of 10 of the law. And the Holy Spirit is going to tell us later that Hagar or Hagar was a picture or of the old covenant. So God is preaching the relationship, the difference between the law and the new covenant. And the new covenant seems to always begin with trouble, begin barren. It seems to begin without children. How could God have children who are holy and righteous from this stock of Abraham? It begins without any children. The old covenant has no problems populating its own house, populating itself with children, because they are all sinners. That's what you find under the covenant of the law. It has children by default. They are children of Hagar. Hagar had no problems conceiving. They are children of Penny Penny. Penny Penny had no problems in conceiving. They mock. Their mothers mock. Their children mock. They scoff. They claim to be righteous law keepers. These children of Hagar were causing the Lord Jesus a lot of trouble, thinking that he was a lawbreaker, causing Apostle Paul, as he was preaching, trouble, and saying, oh, Paul, you're breaking the law by this gospel of grace. So the law and the gospel are represented by the two women in Bikami, one that is loved and the other who is despised. The one that is loved is Sarah, is Rachel, is Hannah, and they are apparently suffering, all of them, from God's induced barrenness because they represent the testimony of Christ. They represent the testimony of the New Testament. The New Testament is 
the seemingly barren woman, Christ seemingly barren with no people, but made fruitful, the man who gave birth, Christ is the man, seemingly barren man, in the picture of the woman who gave birth. As a woman in labor, Jesus said, as he was about to go to the cross. He said, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now Christ has children, but the children were given him. This seemingly barren woman given children by God. Psalm 113 verse 9. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. That's the New King James Version and the New American Standard says the same. On the same verse, he makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. The house is the New Testament. The barren woman is Christ. Some people don't know that women are also types of Christ in the Bible. The prophet said one woman, the woman who had a lost coin, she was a picture of Christ. She lost her coin and she looked for a coin because it was a coin. The coin belonged to her before it was lost and it belonged to him after it was lost and after it was recovered. The woman went to work. She lit her lamp and started searching for her lost coin. And what is in the lamp? You have oil and you have light. The oil is the Holy Spirit and the light is the gospel. So when Christ is searching out for his lost coins, he uses the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. Preaching of the gospel does not make us children. We are already children. We are just being recovered because we are lost in the darkness of the house. Okay. And of course, when he or the woman finds the coin, Jesus says she rejoices. She calls everybody. Right? Just as the good shepherd with the one that was lost leaves the 99 in the wilderness and goes for the one. Okay. That is all speaking to Christ. But for commentary on what we have just been saying on the matter of the covenant of the law and the covenant of the gospel, let's go to Galatians 4, 21 to 27. Galatians 4, 21 to 27. Where Paul said, Tell me, <laughs> tell me you who desire to be under the law do you not hear the law do you not hear what the law is actually saying for it is written that Abraham made two, two sons the one by a born woman the other by a free woman right there you have a distinction a born woman and a free woman 
But he who was of the born woman was born according to the flesh. Ishmael born according to the works of the flesh. And he of the free woman through promise of grace. Which things are symbolic. Those were pictures looking to something greater. For these are the two covenants. Now we have the explanation of what those things meant. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage which is Hagar. That's what Hagar and her testimony represented. She represented Mount Sinai. She represented the law and the bondage that the law brings. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with the children. So the Jerusalem, the Jews of the time as Paul was writing were under bondage to Rome and also bondage to sin and everything was happening in the fulfillment of that picture of Hagar. But the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all who believe we are free for it is written verse 27 rejoice or barren you who do not bear Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. How is that even possible? Having more children than the one who has a husband. How can a single woman have more children? Never had a husband. Verse 27 of Galatians 4 is from Isaiah 54. It's a direct quotation from Isaiah 54, verse 1. And it seems by her barrenness, Sarah had no husband. Well, that's the context. It seemed by her barrenness. She was just like any other woman who did not have a husband. And by her barrenness, Rachel seems to have had no husband. By her barrenness, Hannah seems to have had no husband. But it was not that way. It does not end that way. It does not end in barrenness. The desolate has more children than she who has a husband. There's a brother and friend in, I think he's in Missouri, him and his wife, they went for seven, eight years, no children, trying seven, eight years. Then one came on the scene. They started popping them like eight. Okay? In the fullness of time. Eight years trying, almost giving up, and then they start coming. For all the eight years, it seemed like she did not have a husband. And then suddenly they started coming up. So the mocking of Penny Penny was the mocking of Hagar. And I'm sure her children also joined in the mocking as Ishmael later mocked Isaac. Penny Penny also represents the covenant of the law. They're in the same WhatsApp group with Hagar. 
They represent the warring of the flesh against the spirit and the misery it brings to the children of the desolate. The law brings mocking, not blessing. That is why Paul said, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear what the law actually says? Do you not hear the mocking and jeering of Hagar? Do you not hear the jeering of Penny Penny and the misery that she brings? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, having begun by faith, are you now seeking to be perfected by the flesh? Are you now seeking to enter into God's blessing by the works of the flesh? But Hannah is loved and must get a double portion because those who are the children of the desolate are loved and will get a double portion because of who their mother is. Christ is our mother in respect of salvation. He gave birth to us. That is why on the cross, We had what? The blood and the water. The one who came by water and blood. Water and blood are fluids of birth. So Christ on the cross was giving birth to children. Spiritually. He seemed to be the desolate woman, the barren woman. But he was giving birth to a lot of children. Hannah's name is grace. It is favor. And so we have our double portion because of God's grace alone and not by the works of the law. Verse 8. Then Elkanah's husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Elkanah's assurance of love and devotion gives some gospel insight into the matter. He says, am I not better to you than ten sons? Maybe Penny Penny had ten sons. And this was driving Hannah crazy who had none. But what is that saying? Many glory in their ten sons of the law. In keeping the ten commandments. But Christ asks the question and says, Am I not better to you than Moses? Am I not better to you than the ten sons of the law? Is grace not better to you than Moses? Even though you may think you are unfruitful because it seems like those who are claiming to do the law, they seem to always be fruitful. They seem to be doing a whole lot of things. Am I not better to you? Crisis. What else do you need that I am not? Why do you need Moses? Am I not a better husband? 
What am I lacking? And the writer of Hebrews says, what about Christ and his covenant? Let's go to Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, verse 6. The writer of Hebrews says, But now, he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Christ Jesus, a better husband, a more excellent ministry, better mediator of a better covenant. Better is in comparison to the covenant of the law. Christ is better to the law. Mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. The covenant of grace has better promises than the covenant of the law. Better than the ten sons of Penipen. Ten sons of Moses. Because the ten sons, the ten commandments, are the foundational doctrine to the law. They are the foundational document. Okay? They are the constitution of the law. So when the Bible talks of the covenant of the law, or the old covenant, or the law, fundamentally, it is in reference to the Ten Commandments. So Hannah arose, verse 9, let's go back to First Samuel 1. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Eli was the high priest at this time. And after they had finished with the festivities, Hannah arose, verse 10, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. So Hannah was not satisfied with the flowers and words of affection and devotion from her husband. She needed more than a home, a card, and flowers on Valentine's. She went to the one whom she knew had brought this misery upon her. Then, verse 11, Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Hannah prays out of the anguish of her affliction and says, Remember me. Oh Lord, do not forget your maidservant. See that repetition. Remember me. Do not forget. But how do you want to be remembered? Give me a new house and a new car. No. Your maidservant 
wants a male child. That is my request and no more. And if and when given, I will give him back to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So the giving of this child, this male child, will do what? Will remove all the reproach from her. Will remove the anguish and the reproach. And from this we see also many parents dedicating their children to God. And it seems to be some wonderful spiritual thing to do, but to the ignorant. People are just being religious. Why? Because this was not a prescription as to what you should do with your children when you are given them. The situation of Hannah was preaching of not just any child with boogers on their nose to be dedicated to God. <laughs> this was a child who would become a Nazarite according to the law of the Nazarite as was described in Joshua 6. And this was the same vow that Samson's parents had vowed to the Lord. The Nazarite vow was established in Joshua chapter 6, the whole chapter. I looked at it as like, no, it will be five hours before we're done. But here is a good summary of it in Judges 13, 1 to 5. Judges 13, 1 to 5 will give us understanding of the matter of dedicating a son. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. <laughs> this is a recurrent theme. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, see that if your Bible has gotten it right, the angel, the A, is capitalized. That is Christ. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have born no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be and Nazarite to God from the womb, shall be dedicated to God from the womb, and he shall begin, that is his work, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines, or the Philistines. So the Nazarite vow and dedication was only for the dedication of a child whom God would raise 
to deliver his people from the hands of their enemies. The Philistines being the picture of all that stood against God's people. And that means Christ Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the dedication and the Nazarite vow. It's talking about Christ. Christ Jesus is the one whom Hannah was praying for in the picture. It is Christ, the Nazarite, the male child who removes reproach from us by being dedicated as who are barren in respect of righteousness. It is him when he has been given to the service of God in salvation that our reproach has been removed. So God will make his own children through the new birth in Christ and not by us dedicating our children to him. Is putting the cat before the horse. Why? John 1, 12, 13, to the matter of how God makes his own children. John 1, 12 and 13, John says, But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, to be called the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. So we are children not by our parents dedicating us to God, but because of God's election and redemption in Christ, and the new birth by God himself. That's how we became children. Okay? Let's go, off. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 1, verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli washed her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So being drunk was a thing that was looked upon for a woman to do. That is why Eli thought by the intensity of the movement of her lips that she was intoxicated. <laughs> and so did those who witnessed the Pentecost and thought also that the tongue speakers were full of new wine, they say. Oh, they are full of new wine. They are driving under the influence, as it were. But Peter said, these are not drunk as you suppose. They are not drunk in the manner that you think. They were speaking by the Holy Spirit. They were full of the Holy Spirit. And so did Hannah. Verse 14. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Eli thinks Hannah should go to AA, Alcoholic Anonymous, and get some help. Verse 15. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. 
She says, it is not that at all. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, in agony, in anguish. No wine or intoxicating drink has come upon my lips, but I've poured out my soul instead of pouring out some Budweiser into a mug, as you suppose. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. You see, she's doing a play of words. I have not poured any intoxicating drink in my cup. That's not what is causing me to be this way. I have poured my spirit before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, verse 16, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I've spoken until now. Do not consider me a wicked woman, an intoxicated woman, far from it. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. So Eli is the high priest of Israel at this point. And what does a high priest do? He intercedes for the people. He intercedes for the people. Let's hear this from Hebrews 5, 1 and 2. Hebrews 5, 1 and 2. The writer says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. So the high priest is taken from among men, appointed for men, in things pertaining to God. So that is the reason why Christ came in the flesh. He had to be man to be appointed as high priest for men. Why? For what purpose? That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what Christ came and did. So he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Christ tested in all things, but without sin. So he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So Eli says to Hannah in that context of being the high priest of Israel, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. So this is the intercession of Christ. Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition. And apart from the God appointed high priest, Christ Jesus, there's no going in peace. And there's no petition of salvation being granted to anyone. You cannot be granted the petition of salvation through Muhammad or any other intercessor, any other high priest who is not Christ. Also, the petition that is being granted in the grand scheme of things is not just the birth of Samuel, but proleptically or anticipatively the birth of the Lord Jesus. If you go and read 
the events of how the Lord was born, they very much mirror also the birth of Samuel. That is the real conversation. Verse 18, and she said, let your maid servant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and the face was no longer sad. So Hannah went away with a different demeanor. She felt she had poured herself to God and that she had been heard. I believe that was coming from the witness of the Holy Spirit to her. She just felt differently. She felt that God had answered her. Verse 19. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to the house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So Elkanah knew his wife and she conceived. The Lord enabled her to conceive. Verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord, so Hannah had a baby shower, got some gaba baby food and diapers and all, bore a son, and she named him Samuel. And this is not the etymological meaning of the name, but this is what Hannah decided to give meaning to the name in a particular context. Like, okay, I love this name. I'm just going to attach a meaning to it. I asked for him from the Lord and given to me by the Lord. And that means Christ, Jesus was given of the Lord in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4 to 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So Samuel was born under the law because he was a Levite and his family were Levites. Verse 21 of First Samuel 1. Now the men Akanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow as did the parents of Jesus, who went yearly to the feast of the Passover, according to Luke 2.41. Verse 22, we're going to read all the way to 28. But Hannah did not go up when Elkanah went to the yearly sacrifice. For she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I'll take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. So the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, 
I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. So after Hannah had weaned the child Samuel, and I'm thinking he was about 8 to 12 years old, and able to take care of himself, able to do or serve in the temple in a manner suitable for his age, he took the child to Eli according to the vow that she had made to the Lord. The vow that this son would be dedicated to the Lord in service to the Lord all the days of his life. But we have a problem with that statement. A huge problem. A problem that can only be solved by gospel understanding. Let us go to Numbers 8. To see the problem with the vow. Numbers 8, 23 to 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, This is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old, And above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. Samuel was a Levite. That's why we labored in the beginning to show you that Elkanah was a Levite. Samuel was a Levite and was only qualified as a Levite, to enter into service at 25 years old and over, and also to retire at 50. But Hannah comes and says, she she needs a son. Your maidservant wants a male child that I'll give Back to the Lord to serve him all the days of his life. In contravention of numbers. Of what God clearly said would be the number of years, age-wise, and the length of service that one as a Levite was required to do. And she said, and no razor shall come upon his head. So in Numbers 8, God says the Levitical priesthood must come to an end. They must retire. The priests must cease performing work. They shall not work no more at age 50. And saying what? The end of the law. The end of the law. When we tell people about the end of the law, they default to human reason, 
religious philosophy, and the traditions of their church. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, I don't care. What does Numbers 8 say? This book they do not know how to read. Because the matter of the end of the law is not a New Testament doctrine. It is an Old Testament doctrine. The law itself anticipated its own death. It anticipated its own retirement. Okay? We saw that with Moses taking the children of Israel, trying to take the children of Israel into the promised land. God says, no, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Joshua is going to be the one to do it. You're going to die here and I'm going to kill you. Okay. Moses did not have COVID or pneumonia. God killed him on a mountain called Nebo. The law was killed through satisfaction, through fulfillment by Christ. Christ, the end of the law for righteousness. So the law has to come to an end. The priesthood of the law has to come to an end. The priesthood mediates the covenant that they've been given. The Levites were priests of the law. Christ is not the priesthood of the old covenant. Christ is not. He is the priest, the high priest of the new covenant in his own blood. We have to make the distinction. So when the priesthood of the law retires, it means the end of the law. They should, the Levites, get some retirement benefits, get their pension, right? Anticipating the end of the law. But much of the teaching that you're going to find in the church is trying to bring the Levites back from retirement. Leave them in Florida and enjoy the nice weather. <laughs> but this son of Hannah, though a Levite is special, he begins temple ministry before the age of 25. Just after being weaned, as soon as he is weaned, he is taken to Eli. And he also goes over the prescribed retirement age. Why? Who is he? Is God confused? Hebrews 7. <laughs> From 20 to 25. The writer of Hebrews says, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, we are talking about Jesus, and they, for they have become priests without an oath. But he, with an oath by him, who said to him, The Lord has sworn and would not relent. Ye are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he... Because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to serve to the uttermost 
those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The priesthood of Samuel was by an oath. It was by a vow made by her mother and an unending in a temporal sense of a life commitment as priest to the Lord above the 50 years and before the 25. It was a lifetime of priesthood. As the Lord Jesus also had a priesthood by an oath. Christ's priesthood was by an oath. A priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I have sworn, God says, the Lord has sworn and will not lend you a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the priesthood of Christ has no end, no shelf life. The greater and better judge, the greater priest and prophet, even king, Christ Jesus. Christ is the greater Samuel. Christ is the fulfillment of the vow that was made by the mother of an unending priesthood. So if you hear someone say, well, Pastor James makes up these things, <laughs> well, pray for them. Because they are ignorant and are in unbelief. They're not paying attention to the text. They don't work the details of the text. But let us conclude the matter this way. This was our introduction to First Samuel. Be praying that God will continue to reveal more gospel testimony from these stories for our edification and growth and love and joy in the faith. But as you do that, remember Penina, Penny Penny, and her scoffing of the barren mother or seemingly barren mother by whom we have now been blessed. Because in the picture of the barren mother, Hannah, we have the picture of Christ. We have the birth of Samuel with his unending priesthood, as it were, only typological of the eternal priesthood of Christ. But the barren woman in the gospel sense is looking to Christ and even us, his people. Yes, we are barren in respect of righteousness in our flesh. We have no righteousness of our own. And where are we going to get the fruitfulness since we are barren? In Romans 7, Paul talks about under the law, people bear fruit unto death. It's only in Christ that we bear fruit unto God. Our righteousness, righteousness is not from our own womb. It is not 
of our own conception. It is righteousness that God has freely given us in Christ. It is not of works, but of grace. And Penina carried the testimony of the law. We are introduced to the testimony of the law because in the next chapters, we're going to find a lot of the testimony of the law. What the law is able to do and not do. That old covenant of curses that works with the flesh to bring about death. And we must know here now, even from the names of the mothers, that we are not the children of Penina. We are of Hannah, of Grace. We are of Sarah, of Rachel. We are those who have been dedicated to God already through election by grace and redemption that is in the blood of Christ. So we do not dedicate ourselves to God. And people do that, right? Every time that they go through things, they have some years that they thought they were not doing well. Then they come back, they rededicate themselves to God again and over and over and over again. But that's not how it works. We have forever been dedicated to God. Through Christ Jesus. So that's the testimony of these two women. And we're going to work Hannah, Hannah's prayer in the next message. I'm yet to see if it's going to happen this next Sunday or when. I don't know, but in the week, I'll know the Lord will show me. God be praised. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words that you've recorded for us and given us insight to understand what you were preaching about the matter of our salvation in the pictures of the many different women and their marriage situations, their fruitfulness and lack of fruitfulness, the barren ones seemingly in the picture of Christ and his church, and yet in the fullness of time, Christ coming, and making us fruitful unto God. We thank you for the opening of the scriptures. I pray that your people will continue to love and enjoy all these wonderful things that have been freely given us. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. <laughs> you have a wonderful day. You have a wonderful day. We'll catch you again soon. Be praying for us as we are praying for you. Okay?